If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you, if you would, to join me in Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, as we are continuing in our uh, time together through the Gospel of Mark, we will take a break from this next week uh, for Easter to celebrate the resurrection uh, of Jesus Christ um, together. And I would encourage you to invite your friends, invite your family. One of the things that we're going to be doing, especially during our Sunday school time uh, next Sunday morning at 9 o'clock, is our kids are going to be uh, having an Easter egg hunt and uh, a lesson on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we are still collecting candy for that. You can bring that by the church this week to uh, love on our kids in that way. But invite your neighbors, invite your friends uh, to our Sunday school hour next week and then invite them to stick around and join us for worship. Um, And for all of those that are home online, I know that I'm hearing several voices saying that Easter's my day back. And so I pray that you come back, um, not just back to religious uh, practices and patterns, but instead you come back on fire for the Lord. Amen? Because he's worthy of our worship. Last week I shared with you a story as a child uh, when I remember being disciplined by the Lord. As I grew up, uh, or not disciplined, but disciplined by my dad. And as I, I grew up, I, I grew in that discipline and uh, became an adult. And uh, I didn't learn much because when I was in college, um, one of the things that my friends and I loved to do more than anything else uh, when we were in college, my roommates, we played cards. Particularly, we loved to play poker. And so um, we never played for money. Instead, we pray, played for pride. We played for points um, in in that with one another. And so uh, we would take this big set of poker chips, and we would divvy that out, and we would play until the last man standing. And it was always a blast because we were trash talkers all night long, and we had so much fun. We would spend hours up to three, four in the morning playing poker with one another until the last man standing. And we would oftentimes uh, force those that were out that wanted to come back in. They were bored because maybe it had been 45 minutes that they could play. We made them do stupid stuff in order to get some chips to be able to get back in the game. And it was always a blast. But one of the keys, if you've never played poker, you've never played cards, one of the keys of, of winning is being able to bluff. And bluffing is the practice of tricking your opponents into thinking that you have something better than what you actually have in your hand or tricking them into thinking that you don't have the, car, the good hand that you actually have. And oftentimes, it's not necessarily the most calculating or the most strategic or the best mathematician that wins the game. Instead, it's the best liar. It's the one who can convince the others that I have something better than I've got. And that takes some sacrifice sometimes, a, a willingness to, to, to lay things down, but it all comes down to that last moment when you throw everything all in and you've, you've got that wink in your eye of, do I have what, I think that, what you think that I have or not? And unfortunately, bluffing, though, isn't something that we confine to the games that we play. Bluffing is something that we are all really experts of in our world. All you have to do is spend a little bit of time on social media and you'll see people presenting to the world a lifestyle or a life that isn't really true behind the scenes. We're all Wizards of Oz presenting something before the world, begging them not to look behind the curtain. Worse than that, we often do this in our own spirituality. When we show up to the church and we are masters of the bluff, where people ask, how are you doing? How is your week? And we have mastered the mask, and we have mastered that I'm fine, everything is okay. And that is actually why many stay away from the church. Because they don't see the church as a safe place for failure. 
Because they don't see us being real with one another about our hurts and about our habits and about our hang-ups. Heaven forbid we walk out into that lobby right there where there is a, a mound of resources to help you with your problems or help me with my problems. And heaven forbid someone see me looking through all of that and pick up the pamphlet that says my husband is addicted to pornography. What do I do? Heaven forbid I pick up the, the pamphlet that says I'm depressed and suicidal. What do I do? Heaven forbid I pick up something that talks about my anxiety or my addiction because what if somebody sees me? And so instead of reaching out for the help that we need, we paint on those pretty faces and smiles, convincing ourselves if we can just fake it till we make it, we'll be fine. We live one life in front of the world and we live another life behind closed doors. We live one life on Sunday morning and an entirely different life Monday through Saturday. This is duplicity. This is hypocrisy. And the heart of hypocrisy is pride. Heaven forbid someone see me in any other way than the way I want them to see me. And we hide behind our pride, and this is what Jesus condemned, this pride that results in hypocrisy. Jesus condemns in the religious leaders of his day because pride only hardens our hearts first to the Lord and also to others. And so we're picking up in Mark chapter 12 where Jesus' confrontation with the religious leaders of his day continues and actually escalates and he condemns them for their hypocrisy and for their pride. Look with me, if you will, in Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13, and we will read through the end of the chapter together this morning. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
There's no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How is he? So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she has to live on. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the power of your word that reflects your power over our lives and over the world that's around us. I thank you for the truth that is your word and the truth that is your son, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that this morning you would reveal to us our desperate need for you, that you would expose for us the ways, Heavenly Father, that we give way to our pride to protect ourselves in some way, instead of living lives that are vulnerable, that are open, and that are honest, lives that are dedicated to speaking truth, that we might receive your love and your grace. Forgive us, Father God, for our pride and show us a way that in humility we might receive from you your grace, that we might receive from you your pleasure, and that we might glorify you in the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. We're biting off a pretty big chunk this morning. Uh, in reality, each one of these different encounters and questions could be a sermon in and of its own right. And much like we saw back uh, last year as we looked at the big power miracles of Jesus Christ, we could have preached each one of those individual uh, storylines as their own separate sermons where we see Jesus' power over the storms and over demons and over disease and over death. But instead we realize that, that Mark, as we zoom this out, is presenting those for us to, to present to us a bigger picture. And so I believe as we look at these passages of Scripture and these verses and these different encounters, Peter, or I mean Mark, gives them to us in almost a repetitive staccato machine gun kind of way. This happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, as we are seeing Jesus interact with the ones who are supposed to be the religious leaders of the people of Israel, exposing in them their hardness of heart, exposing within them their pride and their arrogance, and providing for us really what is a horrible example of devotion to God. Leading up to this, as Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, if you remember, the whole section that we looked at between Mark 8 and up to Mark 10, before Jesus enters into Jerusalem, is Jesus training his disciples in what a life of devotion to God looks like. And the 
spiritual leaders here in Jerusalem stand completely opposed to that. So we're going to do a little bit different, something a little bit different this morning. I'm going to work through these and and provide just a little bit short um, interpretation of each of these sections. I can't spend time on every single one of them. Like I said, they could each one be their own sermon. And we're going to kind of synthesize all of that information to one big point and then come back and look at it from that lens. So as Jesus is here, you'll remember the Sanhedrin were the religious leaders, the political leaders, the social leaders of their day. And last week we saw that Jesus came into his first confrontation with them and he rejected them. And he, and he actually condemned their leadership. And this progresses now as they aggressively come after Jesus Christ. We read in this passage of Scripture that this first group, the Pharisees and the Herodians, that come after Jesus, they do so to trap him. And they attempt to trap him by several questions. The first two questions are divisive in their nature. They revolve around two divisive topics, and it's interesting how things have, very few things have actually changed. The first one has to do with politics, and the second one has to do with theology or doctrine. They want to first off, the, the Pharisees and the Herodians want to maneuver Jesus Christ into a position where he is going to take a very controversial political position. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Because if he rejects the paying of taxes, then he's going to reject Roman authority. And guess what happens? He gets arrested by the Roman centurion. But if he embraces the Roman taxation, then he is going to offend the extremists in the Jewish party, the zealots. And he is going to, quote unquote, disqualify himself from being the true Messiah. Because after all, the true Messiah was coming to overthrow the oppressors, not stand with them. And so they think that they can maneuver Jesus into this position where he's trapped, where he's going to have to either offend the zealots or offend the Romans. And so they bring to him, so Jesus' response, though, is masterful. He says, hey, bring me a denarius, which was a common coin in that day and age. And a denarius would have been the, the equivalent in value of a day's labor or a day's wages for a laborer. And that coin on one side of it had the image stamped, of the Roman Caesar Tiberius at this particular time. And there was, a, there was a, 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 a phrase on there, much like we put on our coins, in God we trust, and, and those types of things. And it was the phrase that says, this is Caesar Augustus Tiberius, the son of the divine Augustus. It was a declaration that Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, was a deity. And on the backside of it was a, a picture of his mother sitting on a throne as a goddess. These coins were actually used as a mobile, available idol for the Roman religious cult that worshipped the emperor. And so it is a declaration that Caesar is God. But Jesus has them bring bring them that. He doesn't have one, it's interesting, but they're able to get one. And what Jesus does in that moment is he exposes the fact that because you have them and because you are benefiting from the Roman uh, uh, rule around you that they have roads and they have protection and they have all of these different things, Caesar's image is on there. Give that to Caesar and give to God what's God's. Caesar is not God, but that coin has his face on it. That is neither here nor there in the grand scheme of things, so love the Lord instead. And he maneuvers around, masterfully maneuvers around their attempt to trap him. 
The Sadducees, seeing that he kind of offends and he pushes off the, the, the Pharisees, that were their theological enemies, now step in and they attempt to get him to land on a position on the resurrection. The Sadducees rejected the idea of the resurrection. They rejected the idea of an afterlife. They rejected the, ange- the angels and the spiritual realm altogether. And they only held to the first five books of the Bible, known as the Pentateuch. And so they come with, to Jesus with what they think is this masterful, really elaborate story that humiliates anyone who would dare to believe in the resurrection. With this, this woman who is married to seven different brothers, and they want to know when the resurrection happens, is, is God endorsing polygamy? Because when she comes back to life with all of her brothers, is God, or all of the brothers that she was married to, is she going to be married to all of them? That's ridiculous. God's not going to endorse polygamy, so therefore the resurrection must be wrong. Jesus tells them that they are wrong. That these masters of interpretation and masters of the scriptures and the law of God are completely wrong about not only the scriptures themselves, but God himself. And Jesus actually then affirms the reality of the resurrection. He affirms the power of God to raise the dead. And he affirms that God is the God of the dead. Why? Because God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says in the present tense, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Several centuries after they were, supposed, after they were dead and gone. So in that, from the book of Moses, Jesus unveils the fact that God is endorsing the reality that they are not annihilated and gone from existence, but they are somehow still in existence in the presence of God, and God in his covenant relationship is going to continue to fulfill the, the promises that he's made to them. And so Jesus rebukes them, and in doing so, he then prom- he prompts from someone who is listening, who admires and sees that, that he has answered wisely, This person then, in a genuine, this scribe, in a genuine way, comes and seeks Jesus' input on the law. Seeing that he answered wisely, he says, now now tell us then, help us understand. And this was a common practice of the day, a common debate. Who Who can summarize all of the Bible in one simple command? Who can boil it all down so that we can understand the heart of God for his people? And Jesus' response is really simple. He brings them to a a passage of Scripture that would have been memorized and utilized by every single person in Israel down to the smallest child. As every faithful Israelite would have prayed this prayer, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, let us love him with all of our soul and all of our strength and all of our might. They would have prayed it two times a day. The children would have known that. But what Jesus then does is he brings to bear on that a second commandment that that fulfills then the whole picture of God's heart. That God is worthy of our love and our worship and our adoration, and that love and that worship and adoration of God should then work its way out in our lives to those that are around us. We are oftentimes, we're so overwhelmed by what the church has embraced since Jesus' time. Love God and love others. That's our mission, right? Love God and love others. That we forget how radically new this would have been at that particular moment. And this man takes that into his heart and takes that into his life. He's not sitting over Jesus, judging Jesus. Instead, he is mulling it over, chewing it on it, quoting other passages of Scripture, and then applying it into the lives where he comes to the conclusion that it is better than all of the religious ritualism and practices 
that the Pharisees and the religious leaders have been promoting at this point. And this one who saw that Jesus was answering with wisdom is now seen by Jesus as being very close to surrendering his life and entering into the kingdom of God. He came to judge Christ, and Christ in return judges him, and Christ in return judges everyone else as he then poses a question of his own. As he challenges these experts in the law and experts in Scripture, he challenges their understanding and their ability to interpret Scripture with what seems like a contradiction. In a a society that, that loved and highly regarded their ancestors, it made no sense that David would call his child or his descendant his lord. Because in the pecking order of things, our ancestors are always greater than we are, according to their understanding of things. And so this notion that David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, prays, God said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet, was something that was strange. Jesus is not here denying that he is the heir of David or the Messiah was to be the son of David. What he is saying, though, is that the Messiah is to be someone infinitely greater than just a child of David. And this is actually the clearest in the Gospel of Mark. This is the clearest time that Jesus advocates his own divinity because he is greater than David. He is David's Lord. And David, as the greatest king of all of the history of Israel, would only call his Lord God. And so he he then claims his divinity. And then Mark concludes this section by bringing together, side by side, the lifestyles of two different individuals. One group of people and one individual, unknown and unnoticed woman. The religious leaders, they've come to test him and his wisdom, but they find out that they have none of it. And Jesus pronounces a judgment on their hearts in this moment by their behaviors. As he says, look at how they live their lives. They want to be admired. They want to be adored. They do everything that they can to be seen by other people and get their praise, their admiration. Meanwhile, they completely abuse those that are around them and those that they deem inferior to them. And Jesus says, they are condemned. The scribes, the religious leaders, they are condemned. All the pomp and all the circumstances of these religious leaders and their power of the wealthy does not impress God. It's because their devotion is not to the Lord. Their devotion is to themselves. And in contrast to them, here is this unnoticed, unknown woman who works out of a simple devotion and out of desperation, and she stands as a foil to all of the religious leaders that love themselves and not God, as she shows a simple devotion to him. And in these two instances that help us interpret everything that goes before, what we learn is that pride pits us against the Lord, but humility positions us for his pleasure. Pride pits us against the Lord, but humility is what positions us for his grace and for his pleasure. As we look back through this, we see first that pride pits us against the Lord. The heart of hypocrisy, as I said, and the heart of duplicity is pride itself. And pride hardens our heart, and it first leads us into ignorance. 
Here are these experts of the law who think that they are sitting over the law, that they understand the law, and Jesus exposes just how ignorant they actually are. He says this in particular to the Sadducees, that they are incapable of understanding and applying the Scriptures, that they don't know the Scriptures or the power of God, but it it actually overflows and we see how the Pharisees misunderstand it as they see this false dichotomy between belief and, and, and obedience to God and living in a life that is, is submitted to the authorities that God has placed in the world. They have this, this inability, as I said, to understand and adequately apply Scripture to their lives. The, fad, the Sadducees fail to see God's power or His nature in Scripture because they provide... Right, they, they, they can't see past their pet theological position. They've closed their mind, can, de- determining in their heart and in their life that they are right and cannot be wrong. And so they, the ones that think themselves wise are actually, actually ignorant. But pride doesn't just lead to ignorance, it also leads to idolatry. Jesus exposes this in their behavior as he condemns the scribes, where there he says that what they want is that they want to be admired. They want to be seen. They wear these long white robes that made them stand out. They wanted the positions of prominence in the world. They wanted the best seats at the banquet. They wanted the seat right at the front, in front of the the cabinet that held the scrolls in the synagogue so that all eyes would be on them. They walk into the room and they can't wait for somebody to ask their opinion. And I'll be real honest, I see this a lot among pastors. We walk into a room, and what we want is we want to be noticed. We want to be sought out. We want to be recognized socially and spiritually. We want to be consulted because we thrive off of being needed. And so you hear it, and you see it worst in pastor's kids. As pastor's kids come running up, my name is so-and-so, and my daddy's a pastor. Because we want the adoration and the praise of others. These scribes live to be seen, to be greeted, to be praised, to be admired, to be honored. They want what only God deserves. That's idolatry, brothers and sisters. That's idolatry, ladies and gentlemen. To live for the admiration and love of those that are around us is to take God's place. And we all are guilty of it. Positioning ourselves, feasting off of the attaboys, and oh, that's so beautiful, and what a great job, because we want the praise of people, and that's just a position of pride, but pride doesn't just lead to idolatry, which is the violation of the first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, it also leads to the violation of the second greatest commandment, to love our neighbor as ourselves, pride leads to injustice. These men who want to be praised and want to be admired, they, what they end up doing is they turn that praise and that admiration, they turn their skills, they turn their intellect, they turn their knowledge against the very people that that knowledge is supposed to benefit. And who are the ones who are supposed to be shepherds instead become wolves feasting on the sheep. They take advantage of their power. There's a lot of power in the position of a spiritual leadership. There's trust that's there. And these scribes, Jesus says, are guilty of devouring widows. This, just like this one, 
who gives her heart and her life to the Lord. When I read this passage of Scripture, my mind went back to when I, I was a child and I watched that old Disney movie, Robin Hood, you know, with the foxes and all the animals. And the sheriff of Nottingham, he's that big, big wolf. And there's one particular scene where he comes in and he's collecting all of the taxes, right? And there is this, this old dog who has a, a broken foot. And as an attempt to, to try to feed his family and everybody else, he's, he's hidden some of his, his money down in that cast. And that sheriff of Nottingham feigns sensitivity. Oh, I see that you're hurting. Let me help you get into this chair because he hears the coins rattling around and he fakes all of this stuff and he ends up manipulating the dog so that he can ink out and he can squeeze out of him every single last penny that he has. And that's exactly what these corrupt religious leaders were doing to the people that they were supposed to be serving committing foul injustices, and this duplicity of the spiritual leaders, this pride and this arrogance earns the condemnation of Jesus Christ. As they live lives that aren't true. They live lives that are actually against the Lord. And in their pride and in their arrogance, again, as we saw last week, they are incapable of seeing what is standing right in front of them. They are incapable of seeing the identity of the one who is speaking directly to them. Because when we see all of this, and we see pride, and we see arrogance, and we see instead the humility that Jesus Christ calls us to, we learn that Jesus is actually the interpretive key, not only to this passage, but all of Scripture itself. And is the pathway that draws us into humility and that presents us before the Lord for his grace and his pleasure. The coin that was a walking, talking idol that declared the, the Caesar to be the Son of God. We see in this passage of Scripture that the true Son of God is Jesus Christ. That you can't understand the ministry of Jesus Christ, which is uniquely tied and built upon not just his death on the cross, but ultimately the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can't see it if you deny the possibility of resurrection at all. And that Jesus Christ, as the incarnate God of the universe, is the place where by loving Christ we love both God and our fellow man and from whom we receive God's love so that then we are able to take God's love and give it away. This passage of Scripture, as we see all of these things working together, shows us that Jesus is the true Son of God who came to serve both God and man by dying, rising again as an expression of God's love that both transforms us and then enables us to love God and love others in the same way that we've been loved. His mission as the suffering servant Messiah is what makes him worthy of the worship and the adoration that qualifies him as the Son of God and the Lord even of David, the very greatest king. Jesus is the key to understanding all of it because all of Scripture points us to Christ. And Christ points us to the God who is the greatest in the universe, who desires our worship and we see a sacrifice, and we see the service of Jesus Christ that inspires us to humble ourselves, to receive God's grace and God's mercy. So instead of allowing our pride to continue to pit us against the Lord, we have to instead humble ourselves because humility positions us in front of God's pleasure. We see Jesus commend two people. We see him pleased with two people in this passage of Scripture. The first is the one who humbles himself to be instructed. Whereas pride leads us into ignorance because we are unwilling to learn, humility instead counters that by pushing, positioning ourselves that we might receive instruction. 
This scribe comes to the Lord and he positions himself humbly to learn from the Lord. And as I said earlier, he doesn't pronounce Jesus Christ's uh, teaching here as though he's over Jesus' teaching, but instead we see him and hear him in this passage of Scripture chewing on it and thinking about it and piecing it together and talking about other passages of Scripture until he ultimately realizes that he applies that into his life when he says that is actually better than whole offerings and sacrifices at all. You see, at this day and age, the religious leaders were dependent upon the religious system thriving at the temple based on sacrifices, based on offerings, where people lived the lives that said, I can do whatever I want as long as I kill the right animal at the right time, do the right thing in the right place at the right time, and everything will be taken care of. If I do X, Y, Z, then I'm good with God. Who cares what I do the rest of my life? But this man pulls it all together and says, actually loving God and loving others, that is infinitely greater than all of the boxes that I could check off in church. But humility doesn't just position ourselves where we receive instruction. Humility worships sacrificially. When we understand who Jesus Christ is and the sacrifice that he provided for us, that then should prompt us to respond in the same way. How does this woman worship God? She worships God through giving everything. Everything. Jesus recognizes that what she did is greater than any of the wealthy people who have gone before her because she sacrifices. She gives everything that she had to live on. She worships God sacrificially. Think of the words of David when he came to that place and he's going to buy the the spot of land that's eventually going to be the temple. And the guy wants to give it to David. And David says, no, I will never offer to God something that cost me nothing. Are you living a life for God that costs you something? Or like these wealthy people, are you giving out of your margin? Ann Voskamp wrote a devotion on this passage of Scripture, and there was an interesting line there. She says, there are rich people who give out of their margin, and then there are real followers who give out of their marrow. The word that Mark uses here, when, that Jesus speaks, when he says she put in everything, she gave all she had to live on, it's literally the word bios, the word that we use for biology, biochemistry, all of those things. It's the word for life. She gave everything she had her entire life. All of who she is, she gave to God. She sacrificed. And in that sacrifice, we see her serving others. She's not thinking about herself. She serves selflessly in this. She's not consumed and concerned with her own ability or her own livelihood or anything else. But instead, she is loving God and loving others by giving sacrificially as an act of worship because she has faith in who God is, what God has the ability to do, that he will provide for her and care for her. And so in her generosity and in her giving, she is declaring her faith in God worshiping him for who she believes him to be. I can give God everything because he is the God of everything. He deserves it, and he will take care of me. 
Just like Jacob shared with us earlier from Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 6, we don't have to worry about tomorrow because God has it all in his hands. We see that in this woman's example right in front of us this morning. She can give God everything because he is the God of everything. In poker, there's oftentimes a place where you come in the game where you make the decision, am I ready to go all in? Maybe it's a bluff, maybe it's not, but there's a place where you become convinced, I have the best hand, and this is the best hand for me to win this game, and so I'm going to take everything that I have, and I'm going I'm to put it out there, and I'm going to risk absolutely everything for the sake of winning this game. It's the point at which you are confident that there's no greater winning hand, no greater victory. But the truth of the matter is there's no greater hand, there's no greater victory than the victory that is available to us in Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for us. And when we understand this, that he is the key to understanding all of Scripture, that he is the key to understanding God's heart for us, that he is the manifestation of God's love for us, God's glory for himself, who calls us to love him in the same way, love others in the same way, when we render ourselves to Jesus Christ by humbling ourselves to come before him, then we should be willing at that point to worship him as he deserves, to serve as others need understanding that God loves us perfectly, understanding that God loves us unconditionally, no matter what it is that we have done this week, we don't have to hide from God because he sees it all and he loves you anyway. He loves you unconditionally, he loves you perfectly, and that is the key to creating an environment that is characterized by transparency, vulnerability, humility before God and before one another. We don't have to live lives as hypocrites. We can be open and we can be honest about our hurts and our hang-ups, our habits, those things that are holding us in bondage, knowing that when we release that to the Lord and we humble ourselves before him to be instructed, to position ourselves before God's word, not as those who are masters over it, but instead students who are, who are positioning ourselves that our lives might be transformed by the intake of God's word. And living in this way compels us to know more about who he is. It compels us to worship him more as he deserves. And it ultimately compels us to love others in the same way that we've been loved. And so as we conclude our time together this morning, my question would simply be for you, are you all in for Jesus today? Are you all in for Christ or are you allowing your pride and your arrogance and, and the, the facade that you want the world to see to prevent you from actually living in honesty before him and before others? If that's you, then I would invite you to come to him in humility this morning, confessing your need for him and receiving grace and finding that God is not an angry God, but God is a God who loves you. God is a God who is pleased with the world, that he is working things through and the gospel that he has orchestrated and authored for you and for me, and he loves you perfectly. And I would encourage you to choose today whom you will serve and whom you will love. And that requires something of each and every one of us. It requires a commitment to this path of discipleship that Jesus lays out, denying myself, taking up my cross, following after Jesus with all that I have. What do you need to give to God today? 
that you might love him with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your might. How can you love like Jesus loved? Those that are around you. How can you ask for help from your brothers and sisters in Christ today? I invite you, if you would, to go before the Lord in prayer. Surrendering to him this morning your pride, your mask, and instead coming before him humbly, positioning yourself to receive his grace, that in knowing his love, you might love others well. Take a moment and pray, and I'll close this out in just a moment.